This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. It's a really dangerous situation where we've created a vacuum that is strengthening others with interests antithetical to our own. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Cooperation and conflict in the time of COVID-19 is the theme of the third annual Future Strategy Forum. The conference connects national security practitioners and academic scholars. The keynote speaker was the Honorable Michelle Flournoy, former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. She spoke about COVID-19's impact on national security with CSIS Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program, the Honorable Kathleen Hicks. This conversation took place on June 2, 2020. The Future Strategy Forum is brought to you by CSIS and the Kissinger Center at Johns Hopkins SICE. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me this morning for this third conference. Thanks so much, Kath. Really great to be here. This is a, a massive topic, and I know we only have 30 minutes before we go to the audience to, to talk through it, but why don't we start very broad? I, you know, we, we have from time to time in, in history had these global dynamics that really shake how we think about um, the international system and for the United States, our interests within it. Often the, those are wars that have caused those disruptions. But the question here is, is this pandemic uh, a piece of one of those paradigm changes? Um, is it really shifting how we think about global affairs or is that an overstatement? Yeah, my own view is I, I think that we've been in a gradual shift of paradigm in the world for a while now with the rise of China, increasing multipolarity in terms of the balance of power between great, great powers, um, technological disruption, even revolution in terms of the way that things like IT, cyber, AI, other emerging technologies are fundamentally changing both society and, and our militaries and how we secure ourselves. Um, and also just the growing tension between authoritarian states and democratic states. So I think, you know, into that comes this pandemic. And what I think it's largely going to do is both accelerate and um, uh, uh, deepen uh, or magnify um, some of what was already happening. Much of the security community in the United States has really been focused on the US-China dynamic, obviously before the pandemic, <clears throat> given that COVID-19 originated inside China and there have been a lot of concerns about the way the Chinese government has acted um, since then, do you think, to your point, that the, the pandemic is um, accelerating or shining a light on some of these challenges you've named? Is it changing the way that we should be thinking about the U.S.-China framework? Absolutely. I think that we've seen an accelerated decline in the relationship and increased tensions. Um, some of which are the inevitable by, by, uh, byproduct of an increasingly competitive environment between the two countries, but some of it were unnecessary, I think. And, you know, sort of things that we've, we've made, uh, the United States has made missteps, the Chinese have made missteps. We've taken steps that have empowered hardliners on both sides. Um, and so I think it's, it's a mixed 
bag. But if I could just for a moment, I, I think there are several impacts. One is the US-China relationship. I think we can go back to that. Another is accelerating or magnifying perceptions of US decline and a stepping back of the United States in terms of our global leadership role. Um, another is the um, increasing inequality, the sharpness of the inequality both between states and within states. Um, and then I think broadening our definition of national security. I mean, when you've had a pandemic that has touched the lives of just about every American, people are gonna expect, you know, part of national security in the future will be thinking about pandemic prevention and mitigation. And that's of course gonna affect our priorities for spending going forward. So there are all of these different areas, US, China included, um, where I think we're again, gonna see an accelerating um, uh, degree of change. I want to come back to many of the items you talked about and bring us by the, by, by the close here, certainly to the events of the last week or so inside the United States, because I think you're, you're picking up on several items there as well. But maybe just to start on this sense of U.S. decline in the world and, and just coming at this from the perception of others, you talk to a lot of uh, companies, you talk to a lot of allies and partners of the United States in the world. How, how would you characterize the way in which the U.S. government and the U.S. Uh, role in the world is, the perception of that is shifting? Well, I think most of that, um, their expectations have been shaped by past U.S. behavior. So in past uh, international crises, including uh, you know, epidemics or disease uh, challenges like uh, Ebola or HIV AIDS, You've seen the United States step up and step in to orchestrate an international collaborative response that included everyone. Um, and, and that has dramatically improved the effectiveness of the response. This time, the US did not convene the G7. The US did not convene the G20. Um, and rather sort of double down on investing in the WHO and trying to drive that to be a more effective institution were abandoning that. And so this is playing into fears that frankly predated um, Trump, but has, have been dramatically exacerbated by Trump, that the US is no longer willing to play a leadership role. And what that does is on the part of partners and allies, it creates lots of hedging behavior um, and lots of uncertainty because they don't know that they can count on the US to make good on its security guarantees or, or, or its promises in other areas. And it sort of invites adversaries or competitors to test the limits of US resolve and commitment as we've seen Russia do repeatedly in the Middle East, for example, or, South, or China in the South China Sea. So it's a really dangerous uh, situation where we've created an, an, a, a vacuum um, that is uh, sort of strengthening others with interests antithetical to our own. Do you think there's a prospect that um, in addition to rivals or adv potential adversaries having fe feeling opportunity that there's any sense of other parties, allies, the Europeans, the Japanese, the South Koreans, others, also finding um, ways to help fill that vacuum? Or are you more um, jaundiced, if you will, about the prospects for that? 
Well, I think before the pandemic, I thought that that was a possibility that we would see the Europeans stepping up more on defense, for example, and other allies doing more. Um, I still worried about their hedging against, you know, U.S. absence, because that's not a healthy thing for a transatlantic alliance like NATO. I think with the pandemic now, I worry that um, all of the the bandwidth of their leaders, the spending of their treasuries, uh, ministries of finance will be refocused on the obvious domestic and uh, economic priorities post-pandemic. So I think it just leaves us less united, less coordinated, and less effective as allies, as a, as a democratic community. On the uh, private sector side, the global economy obviously is, is roiling. Um, we already were projecting significant deficits, for instance, in the United States. And now on top of that with COVID itself and then the stimulus efforts that are being undertaken and presumably additional efforts to come will probably worsen that, that challenge. When you talk to those involved in commerce, um, how do they look at this global environment, both the United States itself as an area for investment, but also the prospects for globalization um, in terms of trade? So I think that uh, it really depends on which sector uh, you're in. There are some companies, frankly, that are doing quite well right now and others that are fighting for their survival um, or even going out of business. So it, it really depends. But I think almost everyone expects that this is going to be a multi-year recovery. Um, it's going to take some time. Um, I think those who have both work with the U.S. government uh, as a customer and um, also, who also depend on the Chinese commercial market as a very important source of revenue are finding themselves caught and feeling like they're walking in a minefield every day and, and needing help navigating that. Um, I think there's also lots of, uh, there are some who are dependent on a very integrated global supply chain that are now looking at ways of diversifying that supply chain to be less dependent on China um, or expecting, you know, additional U.S. policy and regulatory change that would force that. Um, and then there's some in the financial community that are seeing, you know, fire sales around the world <laughs> and looking to um, invest in, and, and buy things, buy up equity in enterprises when the, mar the price is quite low. So it's a really mixed bag, but it's very uncertain, very tumultuous. And um, I think every, most companies are scrambling to try to figure out how to navigate through this period. There was already so much pressure on the supply chain issue with regard to China, for instance, um, from the US, both internally and then toward allies. Um, the pandemic, I think, has accelerated, to your point about acceleration, accelerated that. Do you see coming out the other end of this a more nationalistic approach or a more international, a, re, a resurgence, a revival of internationalism around the fragility of um, supply chains and um, around the fragility of interdependence? Yeah, I think, again, it's going to depend by sector. I mean, we've always been worried about any sort of internet, you know, a dependence on China, for example, in our defense supply chains. But I think now you're going to add to that list things like medical equipment, um, protective equipment, pharma, uh, and so forth. Um, so I think the overall frame is going to be not just what's the most cost-effective source of supply, but now do I can I also count on a degree of resilience? 
in a scenario where that's, that's disrupted. And I think that will move us not necessarily completely to onshoring in some areas that may make economic sense, but to um, more of a, a regional approach. I mean, I think the, the revised NAFTA agreement, you'll see, you may see not onshoring to the US, but maybe increased dependence on Mexico or Canada. Um, I think you'll see some re potential for regionalization. Um, sort of the EU is probably looking at this from a similar perspective and saying, what can we bring home to the EU? So I do think it's going to be a, a difficult period. And, and the real challenge is beyond just the business case for all of that is anticipating how governments are going to respond. You know, will China create this threatened entities list and start putting companies on it if they feel those companies are pulling too much out of China? So we have to think through all of those second and third order effects. You mentioned earlier the trend to authoritarianism that predates um, the pandemic itself, but it seems, at least anecdotally to date, that the states that are more authoritarian are really struggling in particular with managing the pandemic itself. And um, at the same time, there's an tick up in disinformation, both in domestic sources here in the United States, but also overseas. How do you see this um, you know, are we headed to an ideological divide, if you will, between authoritarianism on the one hand of various, you know, forms and democracy on the other, or is it more complicated than, than that? I think it's more complicated than that, but I do think there's um, an opportunity if we had the right leadership in the United States to strengthen the sense of community among the free market democracies and to try to negotiate mutually beneficial trade uh, deals, um, uh, go to international fora together to insist on free, you know, standards that support free, free and open commerce. Now I'm thinking of all of the, the standard setting, the rule setting that's gonna be happening relative to the internet, relative to free flow of information. And right now the democracies are not showing up you know, together in a strong way to try to set those standards. And you leave the door open to countries like China and Russia, which are using those same tools to try to create more of a surveillance state and more of a, you know, a, a very different sort of set of norms around the internet and the use of information. And so I think there is an opportunity for us to, to come together and be more effective to shape the future rules of the road, if you will. Um, but I also think it's very, it's sort of a case by case basis when you look at Iran or Russia or uh, even China, any of these states that are, you know, having their own struggles in terms of both dealing with the pandemic and recovering. It's not yet clear whether this will cause them to just focus more inwardly or whether because they're dealing with huge dissatisfaction from their population and their failure to meet the needs of that population, they will try to create some external distraction or some external enemy to refocus public ire. So I, I think that is a movie where that's gonna play out and it's gonna play out in different ways in different countries. So how do we best shape that um, dynamic? I mean, the, what you seem to be presenting is there's, I would think there would be opportunity for cooperation because things like a pandemic demonstrate that we're, we're interdependent, uh, our economies, our, our um, health of our citizens 
relate to one another. So there's areas for cooperation, but at the same time as you're pointing out, the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians, for instance, have all used this period to undertake various um, security-related approaches, whether it's China in the South China Sea and then Hong Kong, or it's Russia with uh, very close call military interactions, um, the Iranians on the nuclear side, you know, so you can see where this could really divide the West between hardline approaches that go at the security uh, angle and approaches that want to lean more to cooperation. How, how do you wrestle with that? I, I think you have to have elements of both. And this is, I think, the biggest failure of U.S. policy right now is we are not integrating and leveraging all of the instruments of our national power to get to our strategic objectives. So from, in my thinking, you need a sort of foundation of deterrence. You need to com clearly communicate what our interests are, what we're willing to defend and demonstrate resolve. And then you need to back that up by, show by showing up, first of all, which we're not doing enough of, and with the clear capabilities to enforce those or, um, and, or defend those interests, our interests, those of our allies and so forth. So deterrence to me, preventing conflict with a, power, a nuclear power like China has got to be the bedrock. But above and beyond that, then you, using our diplomatic tools, our economic weight uh, and our common interests with the allies in both Asia and Europe and Latin America and elsewhere to again, show up in these multilateral fora as a group that's pressing for some of the same issues. I think. The biggest mistake we've made trying to deal with trade issues with China, you know, the diagnosis of the problem is shared and correct. But we've tried, we've shown up bilaterally. We have and focused on things like tariffs. You know, many of our allies are having the same issues with China, and we should have shown up with them, whether it's in the WTO or elsewhere, to press the case collectively. Historically, when we've been able to rally our partners and allies, say in the ASEAN context, for example, we have had some success in pushing back on China. Um, but, but I think that's the opportunity we're missing right now, is that U.S. diplomatic and economic leadership to rally like-minded states to sort of stand up for the rules of the road that are essential to protecting our interests. So, so, so important to that is the credibility of the United States as a leader in democracy. Uh, you know, we don't exactly, with our highly polarized society, obviously violence and um, dissent, uh, police brutality issues, all of this combined, you know, is not an attractive look for those around the world who want to rally, who might want to find a way toward a common approach. Um, how do you think about our internal chaos and challenges as it relates to our ability to execute an effective foreign policy? Yeah, no, I think um, healing ourselves domestically and investing in the drivers of our own strength and competitiveness are absolutely essential. If you look at China's Chinese state-run media today or Russian media, they're having a field day you know, running these images over and over again. So, you know, this country has a deep, his, you know, problem and history of racial injustice. Um, and in many cases, pr police brutality that's resulted from that. And I think we have to step up as a nation and get after healing some of these wounds and addressing some of these issues. Um, at first, you know, step number one. 
But I also think if people, you know, when people ask me, what is the most important thing we need to do, uh, you know, to compete well with China, it's the, the, the number one thing we need to do is to, to invest in the drivers of our own economic competitiveness here at home. It's things like science and technology, research and development, 21st century infrastructure. Why in the world are we not the world's leaders in 5G? Um, smart immigration policy. You look at Silicon Valley, half of the founders are either immigrants or first generation Americans. We've thrived based on a policy that invites the best and the brightest from around the world and then incentivizes them to stay and make them make America their home and the place where they invest their talent. So there's so much that we could do at home to provide that economic and social foundation. Yes, a strong military with a cutting edge that can effectively deter and if necessary defeat aggression is essential. But the, the, the foundation on which that is built is a society that has some cohesion and is very, very strong and competitive economically. And we have to get after those things first and foremost. Before we leave the, the topic of uh, current events, I do want to get your views on the president's um, reference to invoking the Insurrection Act. He hasn't done it yet. He's talked about um, you know, his ability to do that, which is, in fact, um, he has the ability to do that. Uh, what is your sense of the appropriate role right now of the U.S. military um, as part of the, you know, dynamic that is unfolding right now around protests for racial justice? I mean, the, the use of the active duty U.S. military should be an absolute last resort, um, uh, you know, under the Insurrection Act. Um, the first line of defense has got to be local and state law enforcement, then federal law enforcement, then the National Guard. And it's, um, you know, the act has not been used in modern times very much, mainly because A, it hasn't been necessary, because usually when you add those layers up, that's quite a lot of um, law and order kind of capability. Um, but also because I think most presidents, <laughs> previous presidents have understood the extreme sensitivity um, of using the U.S. military against American citizens, or in the you know confronting American citizens, um, and the very real risk to the institution and 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 support for the institution as well. So he does have the authority; it's there for a reason. But if, if he manages this well, and if, if governors and mayors manage this well and use all of the resources at their disposal, including the National Guard called up in a state capacity, it shouldn't be necessary. The real problem with, with this approach is that the president is all about, you know, imposing law and order without first truly acknowledging the root of the problem which is the racial injustice, which is this repeated episodes of police brutality against unarmed people of color. Um, and when he, he uses force, like he did yesterday, to clear Lafayette Square before the curfew, clear peace, uh, peaceful protesters using tear gas and flashbangs so that he could stroll across a park and hold up a Bible in front of a church for a photo op. I mean, it's just, in my view, a gross um, misuse of his authority um, and a failure to respect 
and to really understand the deep grief and hurt and to try to heal that, to try to unify people, to try to bring people together. We are missing a unifier. There's no, there's a divider in the White House, not a unifier. And, um, and so I just, I, it pains me. Um, and I don't want to, you know, have a political conversation here, but I just think we need leadership that can bring us together to try to address some of these root problems and also support local and state authorities in restoring order. So why don't we talk about some of the constructive things that could be happening based on many of the comments you've already made in a, in a current, I won't, I won't call it post-COVID because COVID it continues, but in a environment in which we have a global pandemic, uh, we have layered onto that pre-existing and worsening, in some cases, domestic conditions for democracies. How, what would be your priorities for U.S. security policy and foreign policy? You mentioned, for instance, to continued deterrence to prevent opportunism. So maybe layered on top of that, what are some of the other things you would really like to see? Well, I think we need a, a real rebuilding of the other instruments of national power. We've had a huge brain drain in the State Department. We need to rebuild the Foreign Service and reform the State Department as we rebuild it to be a more capable and robust tool in the future. Diplomacy is going to be essential. Robust diplomacy is going to be essential in it going forward. Um, I think the same is true for you know foreign assistance. The whole question of information tools. I mean, back in the Clinton years, USIA was disbanded, but in a, in the in the age of social media and the internet. How do we uh, communicate uh, our values, our views, our you know the facts, the truths that we hold dear? I'm not talking about a U.S. propaganda machine because I think that's antithetical to who we are, but just a, a, a powerful outlet for speaking the truth um, and to be a resource for others who are in oppressed environments, um, as we have been throughout our history. Um, I think our economic uh, power is probably uh, most important. And re again, rebuilding that um, will be um, essential as kind of a, as kind of a foundation, as a, as a means of, of influence. Um, and then you've done a ton of work on gray zone. Um, we are uh, not effective in the gray zone between peacetime and conflict where m many regimes like, whether it's Beijing or Moscow, where they like to play, the use of um, propaganda, the use of social media, cyber attacks, um, uh, funding for nefarious groups or shell, shell entities. Um, those are all things that we've got to wrestle with and be invest to be prepared in. And again, um, I think you have right now an administration that focuses primarily on two things, coercive economic tools and the military. And those are essential, but they do not add up to a strategy <laughs> or an effective way of influencing uh, the world to support our interests. One thread I wanted to pick up on here is on the information piece. Uh, you know, I, I see little little shoots of hope, which may be uh, which may be quashable. But I welcome your thoughts on maybe a sense that Americans and others in the world 
are turning a little more toward expertise than they have before. In this case, in this pandemic, it's medical um, expertise. Um, in the future, maybe that translates to other areas, whether it's climate or foreign policy issues. Um, and I also see some places where the technology that's out there that you mentioned before, uh, autocracies are using to spy on their citizens. There are places where we're seeing that potential to demonstrate disinformation, to be able to capture mm -hmm. um, where states or groups are trying to stand in the way of freedom and democracy. Um, how would you gauge where we are in this era of disinformation and in addition to building out better government policy, do you see ways in which this pandemic um, illustrates how communities or citizens can have a role? Yeah, no, I, I think um, we definitely are developing some important tools. Um, I think um, there are situations where um, when we reveal the, the disinformation campaign or the conspiracy theory or the nefarious actor behind some set of tweets or what have you, that it does help educate people that they need to be more careful about understanding the source of their information and not believing everything they read on Twitter or on Facebook or what have you. Um, but I think, again, we don't have a coherent strategy and, uh, and sustained approach. Um, and so we're getting episodic uh, and anecdotal results, but not sort of consistently beating, beating this back. Um, and so again, um, I'd love to see us develop more of a strategy in this regard and really invest in some of these tools and bring them together in a way that really kind of multiplies their effect rather than having those, these one-off kind of little occasional victories. So we do have uh, questions from the audience, but let me start off with one that came in from Radio Free Asia. I think it's Sagman Lee asked, what is the impact of COVID-19 on the North Korean nuclear issue? You know, I think that um, we don't know yet. <laughs> one of the things we don't know is whether, what the extent to which the pandemic has affected North Korea itself. But what we can see is a distract, the, that the distraction of um, attention uh, in the United States, um, in allied countries, um, including South Korea and others, um, that we are preoccupied with other issues. And so there's not a lot of attention being paid to North Korea and its continued development of its nuclear program and its missile program, particularly its ICBMs. Um, usually when uh, we're distracted and not paying attention, at some point Kim Jong-un will decide he wants attention and start to escalate a series of provocations. The other thing that I think is, affects this is, you know, when we've succeeded in ramping down the tension with North Korea and slowing their progress in the past, um, it's been when we've been able to pull other key countries into the mix. Um, South Korea and Japan most importantly, China very importantly, Russia uh, to some degree. Um, and right now we are so divided vis-a-vis -vis both China and Russia. And even as we recognize the need to compete and deter, there's really no strategic dialogue with China to identify areas where we have common interests, whether it's North Korea, nonproliferation, climate change, or dealing with a pandemic. Um, we are not 
you know, trying to work with China in areas where we can and we should. That uh, relates to a question we received from Air Force Magazine on what role do you think international institutions like the World Health Organization or the UN or others can play in mitigating competition and encouraging cooperation? Um, I do think they, they are important, but in most cases are in need of some reform. Um, but in my view, you know, the lessons are when we walk away from these institutions and just abandon them to others, they tend to evolve in directions that are not helpful to us. When we double down and invest and try to reform them from within um, and influence their behavior by showing up and leading, um, they tend to move in a much more positive direction. Um, and so I am concerned about WHO, because this should be a largely apolitical institution that's really allowing for the more effective collaboration among public health officials to try to take early action um, to quell pandemics before they spread. Um, uh, and, you know, if we really render that organization ineffective, it will come back to bite us, um, whether it's second and third waves of this pandemic or future pandemics. There are um, some questions specifically on climate change. Um, so I'm gonna kind of summarize several of them and ask, do you think this pandemic points to uh, the way in which the world will or should deal with climate change? And then more specifically, how should the US national security community and the Pentagon think about climate change as part of its agenda or not? You know, well, I think that they, during the shutdown, we saw this sort of, you know, mini recovery uh, of, of the environment. You know, when you see, have dolphins swimming in the canals of Venice and people hearing birds in their neighborhood for the first time, you know, it's, um, it's it, I think it really struck a lot of people. Um, that said, I don't think we have the kind of leadership we need in the right uh, places in our government right now, um, either in the White House or on the Hill, to to lead on this issue. And I do, I do think, uh, I hope it's raised the awareness of Americans that not all threat, not all existential threats are military in nature. Um, climate change is an ex existential threat to the species and to the planet. And so we need to think of it as part of our national security rubric and part of our national security uh, priorities. I do think that um, you know, when the Pentagon has been allowed to sort of lean forward on this issue, in many areas it has. It's uh, done a lot of work on green fuels. It's done a lot of work on cons conservation of energy and facilities. It is an amazing uh, platform for testing out ideas at scale. Um, and I think, you know, mo if, when you look at the, the, the folks who are out in the world and having to think about planning for the future, they think about what rising sea levels would mean to our allies and partners, to our littoral bases, uh, to our, the likelihood and an increasing demand for our forces to be used in disaster relief and humanitarian assistance. So, um, you know, again, if allowed, I think there's plenty of energy and interest in trying to wrestle with climate change from a national security 
perspective as well as the other important perspectives. But right now, that's, that's not allowed politically, quite frankly. There are also questions related uh, somewhat similarly to science and national security. Climate is actually, you know, one of the issues obviously scientists are most concerned about as it relates to security, but the pandemic is another. Do you think, I mean, you're on the board of care, you've engaged on global health issues for a long time. Do you think that um, we in the United States take global health seriously as a national security threat? Um, not as much as we should. We tend to leave it to... Uh, the NGO community, frankly. I mean, well, I should, let me say, USAID does a lot of great global health funding, uh, and that's very important. And in the past, we've led on things like PEPFAR and so forth. Um, but I, I think there's more that could be done, um, especially when you realize the interdependence, um, both in terms of, you know, if, if we beat the disease here, but then we let it germinate in the poorest of the poor countries, we're, it's going to come back to our shores at some point in a second or third wave. So we have self, beyond the humanitarian impulse, which should be very strong in, in our country, um, we have interests uh, involved in this too. Um, but I, um, I think to your more broader point about science, um, I do think this is part of reinvesting in our competitiveness, of really investing in things like the National Science Foundation in real, in basic scientific research, be it relative, you know, related to diseases or new technologies. Um, this is a, a source of American strength. And right now we are not investing enough in those areas. Um, and I think that will make us much less safe and much less competitive in the future unless we correct that. You know, it occurs to me too that this is one area where they're, meaning the uh, intersection of advanced technology and the private sector with government policy seems to be an area where there is broad bipartisan support for leaning forward more and yet we seem to keep falling so far behind where we, our goals, whether that's as laid out in the national defense strategy or, or wherever else. Do you have priorities there that you think are the next place Congress and the administration should be thinking in whether it's related to, you know, advanced systems for the military or it's related to these R&D investments that are about workforce of the future or about science advancement? Well, I think there, there's a long, a long list. Um, and, you know, but certainly uh, AI is an area, um, AI and robotics and how that's not only for society, but in terms of keeping our military edge. Um, things like quantum computing, um, things like um, the next generation of 5G um, that is less hardware dependent and more software driven. Um, things like biotech, um, uh, both on the disease side, but also in terms of uh, biodefense. So there's a whole, a long list. And, one of the things I, you know, some people say, well, where are you going to get all the money? There are a lot of, and that is a legitimate question right now, but I think a lot of these investments can be part of what regenerates the U.S. economy and creates new jobs and different jobs. And I think if you pair that with investment in reskilling, upskilling, education, you can move the American workforce in ways that, that we, again, will be much more competitive internationally, but also, um, I think, much uh, 
you know, sort of work at closing the income gap and the in income inequality in this country as well. And we did actually have several questions on the how to pay for it. So you've, you've, uh, you've saved yourself. Well, I haven't really answered them, but uh, yeah. I think this will be a huge debate in Congress. And, you know, I think I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to try to give you an economic theory for why this is right. But I do think, you know, we have this pattern of, you know, a crisis starts, whether it's whatever the, you know, politics of an administration, we invest heavily in dealing with it. Um, and at some point, we get nervous about deficit and debt, understandably, and then we impose draconian measures like the Budget Control Act and the threat of sequestration. Um, I, I would hate to see that happen early in a next administration because I do think it will undermine our recovery and ultimately our competitiveness. We have to get after those issues in the mid to long term, but we have a lot of recovering to do first. And frankly, a lot of investment in rebuilding our tools and sharpening our tools for a very different future. All right, I want to try to squeeze in two more questions, and I apologize because they're both a little broad. The first is, I would generalize several questions to questions about the pandemic and the military. Um, and so would love to get your assessment of how well the military, U.S. military has done in protecting the health of its force and as it looks at um, deployments, whether in state guard capacity or federal capacity inside the United States of uh, military members, how um, should it be thinking through the ethics of those force questions given the health concerns? So how, how should it weigh, how, how is it doing on its, the health of its force? How should it weigh in the health of, a, of the force as it contemplates a larger role, uh, whether it's in pandemic response or of course the more recent um, contemplation of use of military forces for um, uh, dealing with protests? Yeah, so the assessing how it's done with regard to the health of the force is difficult because I think that some general guidance was given at the top, but then authority and decision-making was really delegated down to the commander level, sometimes the base commander level. So you have a real, really different and uneven record of performance. You have some commands that have literally not had a single case of COVID because of the way they've handled it. Others, um, like we saw uh, on the carrier, you know, a very different situation and, and everything in between. So I don't think the U.S. military was necessarily prepared for this in advance in terms of, you know, they were prepared from, from a, a sense of how we support the, the civilian authorities. In terms of the health of the force, I don't think they were as prepared as they'd like to be. One of the things the U.S. military is really good at is after action reviews and learning lessons. So I am sure there will be long memos written about how we need to be more prepared in the future in terms of PPE, testing, um, you know, social distancing measures and, and so forth. Um, in terms of how they've supported the civilian authorities, um, I think where they've been asked to support, they've done well. I, th I, I, to the extent there's a valid critique, I lay it more at the feet of um, the president and the civilian authorities in terms of not using the Defense Production Act early enough, not mobilizing resources early enough, uh, and so forth. Um, but you've seen, you know, Corps of Engineers step in and build hospitals out of uh, convention centers and 
and so forth, and much of that capacity wasn't needed. You've seen us deploy both reserve and active duty medical staff as an augmentation, which were invaluable to, to hard hit hospitals and medical centers. Um, you've seen, you know, I, I think we probably undertapped the military in terms of its tremendous logistics capability. I mean, had we taken a, a national approach to getting testing out there, to getting PPE out there, uh, to getting ventilators out there, I mean, you know, the Pentagon's really good at procurement and really good at distribution and logistics. Um, but again, they weren't asked to do that. They weren't asked to help. So uh, again, I hope that there will be a serious lessons learned uh, effort after this pandemic, not so much to point fingers and assign blame, but to really learn about how we do better next time. Let me ask you one last question, which is the, the always hard to answer. What are the, what are the things uh, we should be looking for uh, and haven't, haven't been paying attention to? And the example given was, of course, Hong Kong, China's efforts um, to uh, pull Ch uh, excuse me, Hong Kong more fully under Chinese control during the pandemic. We talked a little earlier about some other examples. What might be something we're not watching right now that you'd encourage people to be thinking about as a potential opportunistic uh, next step from somewhere? Yeah, I think we're in a very reactive mode, which is never a good thing. <laughs> um, and so I think we need to proactively be thinking, how will uh, President Xi, who has frankly suffered some uh, political criticism from his population and is now surrounded by a group of hardliners who are encouraging him to consolidate power, um, take strong measures. What's the next move, whether it's in Hong Kong or we all noticed um, the dropping of the, world peace, uh, the word peaceful in front of Taiwan and its reintegration. Um, so what could we expect there? What could we expect in the South China Sea? Really focusing on some of those potential scenarios and thinking through in advance how we would respond um, and how could we deter that in the first place? Same thing with Russia. I mean, I don't think Putin's in a particularly strong position right now, but we've seen whenever he, even when he feels weak, he tries to find ways to change the subject. Um, and so I think uh, we need to be doing the same for Russia, for Iran, for North Korea um, and others. Um, and again, maybe that's happening. Uh, I hope it's happening in some basement office of the Pentagon, but uh, no evidence of it uh, so far in terms of thinking strategically about these scenarios. Yeah, and I think I would just uh, take the moderator's privilege to throw on top of that the domestic pieces, obviously right-wing extremism we're seeing tick up in the current environment. Um, and uh, I, I can imagine we could see other things of that sort. Michelle, thank you so much for helping us kick off this conference and for being willing to do it in this um, unusual format. But I know you're very used to Zoom by now. Uh, really appreciate you um, doing such a far ranging conversation with us. Um, so thanks. Well, thank you and best of luck for the rest of the conference. And thank you. everyone, I hope you all stay healthy and safe. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.